0: Welcome, my name is Leva Bonnevi and this is episode one of Clan of the Horses, a podcast about horses and horse people. I'm not going to try to hide the fact that I am Norwegian and that English is my second language, not my first. So here, there or everywhere, for all I know, there will be big or small blunders apt to remind you that my citizenship might be different than yours. So be it. We live in the golden age of sound and sound knows no borders. If you, yeah, you, my dear listener, possess an open mind and, more importantly, an open heart, because I'm about to tell you something that will change your view on horses forever. I'm not going to try to hide the fact that this is my second podcast, not my first either. My first podcast is the Norwegian version, based on my novel Hestnesklan, Clan, Clan of the Horses. And this podcast is, apart from the original English interviews, a transcript of existing Norwegian episodes. I did consider using a professional translator in order to ensure that everything was perfect. But I'm sick and tired of perfect, to be honest. I leave that to the fashion bloggers. I'm also sick and tired of having to rely on others to get the job done. I get my fair share of that as a film producer and a published author. What I aim for here is authenticity. Real horse people and real life. And I trust your ability to read between the lines when my language fails me. I trust your intellect. And when your intellect fails you, I trust your heart will listen and help bridge the gap. I've spent quite a bit of time trying to figure out the best way to start this podcast because I think it's important that it sets the right tone for the episodes that follow. And after a bit of back and forth, I came to the conclusion that I better start with the beginning. My beginning. My beginning so we know where my message is coming from. Like so many other girls in Love with Horses, my ultimate dream was to ride a horse at a gallop over an open field, win against my face and in my hair, and just ride, ride, ride. I didn't know back then that this is a universal image, shared by all those girls in Love with Horses. Nor did I grasp that riding across an open field at a gallop was really a profound message from my subconsciousness. The open field was a metaphor for my inner landscape, lying there, waiting to be explored. And like so many other girls, I recognized the horse as the perfect guide to take me there. But before I got that far, that I got to ride at a gallop over an open field, I managed to get tangled up and lost in a conventional riding school, deeply rooted in old military traditions. I've often thought in retrospect that my first years with horses remind me a bit of Milgram's experiment. The Milgram experiment on obedience on authority figures was a series of social, psychological experiments conducted by Yale University psychologist Stanley Milgram. What they measured was the willingness of study participants to obey an authority figure who instructed them to perform acts conflicting with their personal conscience. The participants in the study were led to believe that they had to administer electric shocks to another person, not knowing that the shocks were fake or that the person who received them was an actor. These fake electric shocks gradually increased to levels that would have been fatal had they been real. In short, the experience showed that ordinary people's obedience to authority figures are much greater than we think. And looking back on my first years at the riding school, I failed to see that I would ever have thought it'd be a good idea to hit another sentient being with a whip, kick him hard in the belly, or jerk on the bit in his mouth without a hint of sensitivity. But that's exactly what I did. I was ten years old, and completely dependent on somebody being there and teaching me the difference between right and wrong. Unfortunately, no one did like the rest of the girls in Love With Horses, I chose the same riding school as my friends did. But had I known what I know today, I would have used a lot of time and worked much harder to find a place where they taught kids how to be respectful around horses, and where they taught kids to ride in balance and harmony, with softness, feel, compassion, and patience. It never occurred to me at the age of 10 the kids are fast learners, and what they learn early on tend to stick like glue. Nor did I know that it would take more than 15 years to unlearn 95% of the shit they taught me. As for the remaining 5%, they seem to be stuck for good, engraved in my cells and bones forever. Looking back, this was just the first of many life lessons in how clinicians Instructors and trainers in the horse community are happy to empty your wallet, but often incapable of teaching you anything of lasting value. There is a big difference between good and bad riding instructors and good and bad riding schools. And I thought I would illustrate the difference by telling you two stories to help you recognize and avoid the latter. The first story I have call The Girl Who Refused to Jump. And the second story is called Papio named after the Little Pony Papio, which is French for butterfly. The story about the girl who refused to jump is based on a a riding lesson I witnessed some years ago. It was a beginner class with ten girls. They learned to sit comfortable on the horse in three gates, and now it was time to jump. The experienced riding teacher asked the girls to queue up in one end of the indoor arena, She then built a plain obstacle in knee height on the long side, and placed herself next to the obstacle. And then she asked the first girl to jump, and the girl did, looking determined and fearless. She was followed by four other girls who jumped like they've done it a million times before. But the fifth rider hesitated. She was scared and didn't want to jump. But the riding instructor ignored her objections, Jumping was the only dish served that afternoon, and everybody was expected to eat. The little girl tried to explain that she felt unsafe, but the instructor wasn't interested. She kept insisting that she had to jump, and then reminded her how it was done. I remember thinking that 30 years after I had my first riding lessons, there are still riding instructors out there who are working with children even though they don't like, understand, or care for them. It would have been so easy to let the little girl off the hook and give her time to find her courage. But no, the instructor insisted. The reluctant girl just had to jump. She hesitated for a while before peer pressure got the best of her, and she rode towards the obstacle. What then unfolded went a little too fast for a riding instructor, who probably had placed her mind somewhere else and wasn't really paying attention. When the horse approached the obstacle, it suddenly pulled hard left, attempting to avoid the jump. The rider instructor tried to grab the reins as the horse went past her, but she was too late. She did, however, reprimand the girl immediately, and made her ride back to where she started and try again. The girl did what she was told, and the same scene unfolded. The horse pulled hard left, but this time the riding instructor got hold of the reins, punished the horse to remind him who's boss, and then she demanded that the girl gave it a third try. At this point, it probably dawned on the horse that the only remaining option was to jump at the obstacle, and he did, reluctantly. Finally, the girl was allowed to find her place at the back of the queue. She was crying, and my heart went out to her, but to be honest, even more so to the horse the horse that was punished for doing exactly what the girl had asked him to do. The girl didn't want to jump, and he didn't. The second story is a story about the little horse Papio. He looked like a Welsh mountain, but it's hard to be sure. He was really petite and way past his prime, probably 20 years or older. When I first saw him, he stood cross-tied in a stable, surrounded by three young girls grooming him. They played and laughed and enjoyed themselves. But none of them took any notice that Papillon didn't share their enthusiasm. He just stood there, stiff and silent, with his ears pinned back. What really upset me about the scene that unfolded was that while these three inexperienced girls were grooming that poor little horse, the person that was trusted to tell them the difference between right and wrong The person that was paid to teach them everything they needed to know about horses said and did nothing. She just minded her own business. While little Papio was groomed and groomed and groomed. What is the underlying meaning of these stories? Well, they underline two of my most important ambitions with this podcast. The first is to remind you that we too often punish the horse for doing exactly what we asked him to do. The second is that we need to allow the horse to speak his innate language. We need to allow him to have a voice. Before Papillon became a horse who stood stiff and silent with his ears pinned back, he probably moved around a bit while swishing his tail, hoping it would make the girls go away like flies. But he was told that was forbidden. Then he may very well have been a horse that tried to bite the girls, but he probably learned fairly quickly that that was forbidden too. And when I met him, after a long life dedicated to human service, the only thing left of the nuanced language he was born with was clenching the jaw while pinning his ears. And at no point did the so-called riding instructor tell the three little girls that when a horse looks like that, it means he does not want to be groomed. So choosing the right riding school or the right riding instructor is one of the most important choices you make as a rider. Whether you're a novice rider or an experienced equestrian looking for further education, you also need to take into consideration that the level of education of the average instructor varies not just from stable to stable, but from country to country. Some countries are young horse nations like my country, Norway. Others have long traditions to fall back on. Like England, Spain or France. This needs to be taken into account when you choose your instructor. It is better to drive a few hours or even travel to another state or another country, like I have, and learn to write properly, than to choose the first stable you can find, based on geographical proximity or flipping through the yellow pages. Be particular and very cautious about instructors who promise you immediate results. There are no shortcuts or quick fixes when it comes to riding. The foundation you build in the beginning of your career is there for life. Make it solid, balanced and soft. It took me years to realize how worthless my first encounter with the art of riding had been. My seat was awful, shoulders stiff, hands insensitive, heels were hard and busy, And as far as the last 5% goes, if I take a break and do not ride for a while, guess what patterns surfaces the next time I mount a horse? Yeah, the old, reliable, shitty ones. If I had met my first instructors today, this would have been my opening line I want my money back. I also wish I had known before I started riding that I brought with me two invisible challenges to the stable that I was not aware of. The first one was my efficient and busy brain. The human brain contains two major learning systems. The knowledge and understanding-based system, which captures connections that the brain must digest actively and break down into components. Then there is the automation system, that is, when you have acquired a skill that you have performed over and over again, which has eventually become so automated that you can perform a task without having to think. There is no doubt that the brain's ability to automate makes our complicated lives a lot easier in many ways. But when you encounter a horse, having a brain that operates in this way is not optimal. Let me illustrate the automation system in practice. Imagine you're walking towards an escalator in the middle of a busy mall to get to the second floor. As you approach it, you notice that the escalator is out of order. It doesn't move. But what your eyes see has no impact on your brain. As you place your foot on the first step of the escalator, your brain is still convinced that the escalator will in fact move, and it, it has carefully prepared and balanced your whole body accordingly. So the first two steps are bound to feel awkward and strange. In other words, Seeing something with the naked eye is not enough to convince your brain to rethink a well-established concept or pattern, on the contrary. And this particular detail is very important to take into consideration when you spend time with horses, because automation makes you insensitive and blind. It is also important to bear in mind that before you enter the stable for the first time, you are bound to face another significant challenge – at least if we were born in a western part of the world. A challenged, reminiscent of a handicap. It is tempting to call it cultural blindness. You may not be aware of it, but the horse is playing a very prominent role in the history of art. The horse is by far one of the most depicted motifs through the ages, from the first cave paintings and all the way up to modern times. And it is a well-established fact that the horses you have seen depicted in art often have wide, dragon-like nostrils, ears pinned back, eyes filled with rage or fear, and wide open mouth desperately trying to fight a human sitting on their back while sucking them dry like a parasite. And if you take the unfortunate combination of a bad riding school, your brain's inclination for automation and your acquired cultural blindness, you have a cocktail apt to make your everyday gaze too hard to fully see and understand the horses you spend time with. In this episode I will therefore provide two techniques that will help you regain the soft gaze you were born with, but let me start by telling you why you need them. My experience is that owning the same horse for more than a decade is one of the best ways to gain a deep understanding of horses. And the journey that my first horse and I embarked on more than 30 years ago did change my view on horses forever. It started with a feeling that something was slightly off. And when I started looking for answers, I found some trainers who offered new perspectives. And I eventually ended up at a farm where all the riders put the horse first, and their personal needs second. The easiest way to describe the experiment is probably by using a metaphor. Imagine two planets. One is the world of humans, and the other is the world of horses. Between these two planets, the humans have built a bridge. And I realized that I was one of those riders who crossed the bridge and brought the horse over to my world and made him live there. Well, what we tried to do in this more alternative stable was to lead the horse back over the bridge and allow him to stay in his own world and spend time with him there. The first thing you will notice if you spend time with the horses where they belong is that they act completely different. It's like a completely different animal. They are softer in the body, milder and more open in their expression. The airplay, as we call it in Norway, is rich and they will greet you with a different kind of attention and interest than you're used to. The transition from conventional to natural keeping of horses was slow and soft, so I didn't notice much difference at first. But when I visited a conventional stable for the first time in years, the shock was indescribable. I made an attempt in a chapter of my novel Clan of the Horses, but the truth is that the experience left me at loss for words, and I will never get over it. I didn't fully understand at first, but I gradually came to realize that what had happened was that my gaze, after having spent so much time with horses in their own world, had become soft again, too soft to handle horsemanship and riding in a conventional stable. I suddenly saw horses looking like Papio everywhere. Sad horses. Horses who had lost their language, their curiosity, their soundness. Horses who no longer tried to relate or communicate with the humans around them. But nobody seemed to notice. That's when I realized that it wasn't just my horse who gently knocked on my door every day to see if there was anybody home. All horses do it all the time, but we do not answer because we're not at home, not at home in our own lives and not at home in our bodies. The great paradox for me is that the horse has to offer, which everyone who rides intuitively feel a strong attraction to, is precisely the opportunity to find back to our authentic selves. So, when did you last spend time with your horse without having an agenda? Really, when did you just walk up to him, stand there and wait for his response? When did you last take him for a walk in a halter and just allow him to absorb the grass, the nature, the sun and the wind? When did you last just share time and space with him without thinking about anything, time included? When did you last just lie next to him in the grass under the same sun and watch the clouds passing by? If the answer is never, I can't remember, or a while, feel free to step up your game. Your horse will connect and love you for it. And when you have done that for a few days, here are the two techniques that are apt to force your brain to give horses the benefit of a softer gaze. I call them the pasture test and the best friend test, BFT for short. They're both easy to use. And that will help you get past your bad riding school habits, your brain's talent for automation, and your cultural blindness. My contention is that art history has made us insensitive to the language and nature of the horse. And it has also taught us that when a human and a horse come together as one, completely different rules apply. For example, we allow much more violence and force when we deal with horses than many of the other domesticated animals we refer to as our friends. Imagine walking past a courtyard, where somebody is trying to load a big black horse on a trailer. The horse refused to go up the loading ramp, and the determined horse owner jerks on the lead rope and use a whip. As you walk past, the horse tries to bolt, but the owner stands her ground and hit the horse again. After all, a horse weighs 600 kilos, and it needs to be controlled. Then imagine that you walk past a driveway where a dog owner tries to get a large black dog to jump into a cage in the back of the car, but the dog refuses. How would you react if the dog's owner jerked on the collar several times as hard as she could and then hit the dog with a whip so it whimpered in pain? Would you get involved or mind your own business? You would interfere, is my guess. Hitting or kicking a dog is just not acceptable nor is jerking on the dog's collar as hard as you can, but hardly anyone raises an eyebrow if you hit, kick or jerk on the lead rope or reins on a horse. Have you ever wondered why? Why there are a separate set of rules for horses and dogs? Like I said, it's my contention that when a human controls a horse through either lead rope or reins, we stop seeing the horse as a horse. Our brain sees him as an extension of the rider, and we are no longer able to truly see the horse as an individual living being. Using the past pasture test will help you separate horse and human, and it will also enable you to see the horse clearly. The test works as follows. Imagine that you are watching a dressage competition, and the horse and rider in the arena is about to af- perform a pirouette. Your task, then, is to erase the rider, the saddle, and all the equipment, bit, bridle, everything, so the horse is left alone and naked, so to speak. Then you eliminate the arena, the judges, and the audience, and picture the horse in a pasture instead. And as you watch the period being performed, ask yourself the following two questions. Does this movement look natural? And if the answer is yes, with what quality was the movement performed. I use the pasture test to determine whether the performed movement is natural for the horse or not, something I think is essential. And when it comes to a period, a passage, or in fact also a piaf, or baita to a lesser extent, you will find variations of these movements within the horse's natural behavior. It is not uncommon to see a horse perform a 180 or 360 in a heated situation. Nor is it unusual to see a horse performing a perfect passage. And with domestic horses, you can also see piaf, if a very excited horse is waiting impatiently at the gate, for example. Whatever falls into the category normal pattern of movement, I am for. What does not fall into this category, I am against. It is that simple. Let me give you a few examples. Many horse owners teach their horses to lie down on command, not an exercise I recommend because we're talking about a flight animal and lying down makes them vulnerable. But having said that, I have no problem with it as long as it's positive reinforcement that's used and as long as the horse really feels safe. I do, however, have issues when a so-called horse master trains a horse to lie down flat on its back like a dog with his vulnerable stomach exposed. Do not allow yourself to be fooled or impressed. Trust me, a true horse master knows better. For sure a horse can load all his body weight on his spine for a few seconds while rolling, but only for a few seconds. And if you know what his spine looks like without hair, skin, tendons or muscles, it makes perfect sense, because it's like lying on a bed of nails. Or more precisely, A ridge of nails. Look it up if needed. Then you have horse owners who teach their horse to sit like a dog on command. This is an example of an exercise that will not pass the pasture test. For sure some horses will sit for a few seconds while getting up after a roll, but rarely longer, unless there is something wrong with them. As opposed to a dog who will sit numerous times a day by choice. So if you want an animal to lay on its back or sit, consider buying a dog, not a horse. Then you have the grey areas. Things are never just black and white, there are always several shades of grey in between. While pirouette, passage and jumping are all examples of natural behaviour in a horse, apt to be refined, lying on its back with an exposed stomach or sitting like a dog is not. But what about backing up? Or a Spanish walk? Well, you will seldom see a horse walking backwards unless somebody makes him. And although you can see a horse lifting his front leg, as if it was planning to take the first step of a Spanish walk, for example when two horses meet each other for the first time, you will never see him take the second step. Which is apt to make me reluctant. But if you do decide to teach him to back up, because it's a requirement for a dressage competition, I'd make sure to help him keep his diagonal while doing it. Not four separate steps, but two beats, with footfall-like trot only backwards. And if you consider teaching him Spanish walk, be very particular about how and why, because this is a movement he will never offer by himself. Then comes the second question the pastor test will help you answer. With what quality was the movement performed? To answer this question, erasing the rider completely and just focusing on the horse is vital. If you force your brain to remove the rider, you also force your eyes to see the horse. Really see him. Not like the escalator out of order, where your brain is just on autopilot. With the pastor tests, your brain is engaged, and fixed patterns and expectations evaporates like dew under the morning sun. And you'll be surprised to see that what used to look like a nice pirouette suddenly looks strained, stiff, and sticky like, like syrup. What used to look like a nice passage suddenly looks like something that loses its flow, its elegance, and it looks mechanical. And what used to look like a balanced piaf, where the horse really collects, shifting his weight to his hinds, now looks like a hand-standing piaf where the hindquarters jumps up and down, bearing zero weight. Let me also give you a few examples of disciplines that would never pass the pasture test. The first one is Western pleasure, where the horse walks, trots and canters, which are patterns of movement of a horse that can certainly be performed in a pasture, but now we're looking at the quality and the impulsion of the gates as well. In Western pleasure, the gates are performed with a quality that has nothing to do with a healthy and natural horse. To be honest, if my horse had met me at a gallop in the pasture, which he often does, and he had galloped extremely slow, dumped on his forehand, and with his his head heavy and way too low, my instinct would be that there was something seriously wrong with him, and I would probably have called a vet. Another example is Tennessee walking horses, where you have the big lick, where the horse's hind feet look like a German shepherd in pain, and his head and neck moves pigeon-like back and forth. And then you have the gallop, where the horse struggles to move forward with his broken diagonal, like a wounded animal, right before the lion moves in for the kill. That this is even allowed in a modern society is incomprehensible. And I'm not even going to get into the use of chains and soaring and whatnot. Why they often refer to this competition as celebration something is beyond me. There is nothing to celebrate here, which reminds me of another thing that needs to change in the English-speaking horse world. Please stop calling it broken to ride, saddle broken, or broken in when you try to describe a horse that it is possible to saddle and or ride. It sounds just as horrible as it used to look way back when, when horses were indeed broken before they were ridden. The word we choose has a huge impact on how we perceive things. It's 2020. Please, let's do better. To sum things up, by using the pastor test, you will be able to overcome the cultural blindness you have acquired You will be able to expose animal abuse disguised as equestrian sport. And last but not least, you will be able to determine the real quality of a performed exercise. It is also guaranteed to soften your gaze. I dare say you will be surprised if not stunned when you finally are able to see the real horse under the rider. The second technique I used is the best friend test. BFT for short. Like the pasture test, BFT is a very simple concept, apt to force your brain to rethink the notion of calling your horse your best friend. This test will help you overcome automation, which is bound to make you insensitive around horses. The technique is simple. You force your brain to replace your horse with your best human friend. The first thing that will happen is that your brain will protest loudly and call the technique meaningless. Your brain already knows that you don't treat your horse as your best human friend. You would never put a bit in the mouth of your human friend. Neither would you lock him up for the night or and for the most of the day and leave. But you do both and more to your horse on a daily basis. And since you've done it a million times... It was automated a long time ago, and you're no longer as sensitive as you need to be. If it is true that your horse is your best friend, then it's time to stop and reflect. Not to say that you can't keep your horse in a stable or use a bit, but you have to be aware of the quality of your actions. You have to reflect on how things are done to your horse. Replacing his mouth with the mouth of your human friend And imagine locking your human friends up for the night in the stall. Your brain will be really concerned about the details it ignored completely just a few seconds ago. How clean is that bit, really? Is it fitted correctly, so it creates as little discomfort as possible? Is it small enough to allow the mouth to be closed? Is it cold? It ought to be lukewarm. Would maybe bitless be better? Then imagine sitting on your best friend's back, holding the reins. And note the questions that keep coming from your desperate brain. How soft is the hand holding the reins? How clear is the line of communication between hand and mouth? So your friend will understand what your delicate and soft signals mean. Remember, your human friend can no longer speak because of the bit. Only available communication now between the two of you is through the reins and your bodies, and you will for sure neither pull, kick, hit or jerk. Who wants to hurt their best friend? The same goes for locking your friends up in the stable to stay there for hours, maybe longer. If you did, I suspect you would have made 100% sure that your friend had the opportunity to rest comfortably in a clean, welcoming environment and have access to clean water at all times. And it would make absolutely sure that your friends knew when the doors would be unlocked again. Predictability and rhythm makes confinement easier to handle. So to sum things up, the value of a soft gaze when being with horses can hardly be underestimated. And it is the bedrock on which this podcast is built. I will also share notes from different clinics from the last 20 years, evaluate different training philosophies, and invite guests who offer different perspectives, or know more than I do. And sometimes I may give you a riddle, like the one you got with the trailer for this podcast. Here is the answer. I asked you to imagine walking past the green meadow and seeing four grazing horses. The first horse looked small and stocky, heavy-built with a solid skull, thick neck and short legs. His mane was dark zebra-like erect, and he had no forelock. He was dun-colored, but his belly and muscle were white, and his lower legs dark in color, almost black. The Pavalsky horse is the closest relative we have to wild horses today. It is a rare and endangered species native to the steppes of Central Asia. It was virtually extinct from the wild, but reintroduced to its native habitat in Mongolia in the 1990s. Wild horses are designed to eat more than 17 hours a day, drink once and sleep three to four hours, either lying down or standing. They are curious by nature, in constant movement and highly sociable. Remember, this is the life horses were meant for. The second horse was Bay. There was an eagle feather attached to her mane, and her coat looked curly. If you didn't know better, your first instinct would probably tell you that she was just turned out after a long and hard trail ride. But you'd be mistaken. The curly horse is claimed to be the only hypoallergenic horse breed in the world. Research indicates a protein is missing from the hair of the curlies, which may be what causes allergic reactions to other horses. There are only a few thousand curlies worldwide. The origin is debated, but I'll stick to the version I know. Native Americans regarded the Curly horses as sacred, and only shamans and chiefs were allowed to ride them. To me, curlies symbolize the sacred and spiritual side of horses. And if you look at myth and folklore, the horse is often depicted as the bridge between our world and the spirit world and that's not a coincidence. The third horse was a magnificent black stallion with a shiny coat, with a burn mark on his hip resembling a bull's head, and he was wearing a halter made of pure gold. There are many famous horses throughout human history, but few are more famous than this one. This stallion was offered to King Philip II of Macedonia around 344 years before Christ, but King Philip, was not too enthusiastic. It was an amazing horse, but it proved impossible to ride, so the king turned down the offer. But his 12-year-old son, Alexander, was mesmerized by the black stallion, and he made an agreement with his father that he would pay for the stallion himself if he was unable to ride him. King Philip agreed to this, and the story that follows exists in at least two versions. In the first version, Alexander understood that the stallion was afraid of his own shadow, and all he needed to do to ride him was to make sure that the horse faced the sun. In the second version, Alexander rides the stallion after putting on a halter of gold. Bear in mind that the Latin name for gold is aurum, which means shining dawn. Gold is also called the sun of the earth so both stories are merely two different versions of the same metaphor. Alexander simply met the stallion with a pure undefiled soul, which is what the sun and the gold symbolize. And there are at least two important things to learn from the story of Alexander the Great and the war stallion Bucephalos. The first is the historical perspective. The horse was the world's first war machine, Virtually all the largest empires the world has ever seen were founded by equestrians, and for hundreds of years, whoever had the best horses won the war. And the horses ploughed our fields, carried our worldly goods, and thus contributed to making our communities so large and complex that a written language was required. In short, we have built our civilizations on their strength and willingness. The dog may be man's best friend, but the horse is without a doubt the most important friend we have ever had. The second important lesson from the story is that Alexander the Great has not been exposed to a poor riding school, nor was his vision distorted by art history. He was pure of heart, authentic, and he met the horse with innocence and openness. And if you do, a horse cannot help but respond to you. The fourth horse was a chestnut thoroughbred with a mark that resembled a crescent on his forehead, a white left hind stocking and a right hand sock. This is another famous horse and one of many racehorses who ended up on a silver screen. But it is not Biscuits or Secretariat. It is the legendary racehorse Farlap. Born in New Zealand in 1926, he became a major Australian crowd favorite after winning 37 of 51 races. Farlap was at the height of his career during the Great Depression, and people desperately needed something to believe in. For many, Farlap became a beacon of hope and an icon of his time. He died in 1932, only five years old. The cause of death is known, but it is unclear whether the fatal inflammation in its digestive system was caused by an acute bacterial infection or an overdose of arsenic, although the latter is more likely. We often honor these horses several decades after their death, but were we able to honor and protect them while they were still alive? You have just heard episode 1 of the podcast Clan of the Horses, a podcast about horses and horse people. The next episode airs the last Monday of October. I want to thank my composer, Fredrik Blom. And last but not least, I want to thank you, dear listener, for your patience. May the horse be forever with you.